0: Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at history of the Second world War. Com.
1: History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertained stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy bonus content, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson. And I'd like to tell you a story. It's a warm, beautiful afternoon, June 22nd, 1807. The USS Chesapeake, an American three-mast frigate of some 40 guns, has recently set off and is now just off the Virginia coast when its crew notices another ship in the distance. Huh. It's British. Soon enough, the Americans can see it's the 50-gun frigate, the HMS Leopard. The warships draw closer and closer. According to some accounts, they each signal friendship by firing a shot leeward. Come 3.30, the Leopard catches up with the Chesapeake roughly 8 or 10 miles southeast by east of Virginia's Cape Henry. The British now hail their American counterparts, indicating they have a message for the Chesapeake's commander, Commodore James Barron. Okay. Okay. This is all common enough practice, so no need to worry too much. Yet. We will heave to, and you can send your boat on board of us. James hails back. The large, round-nosed, 38-year-old Commodore awaits this message in his cabin. Within a few minutes, British Lieutenant Meade arrives by escort with a note from his captain, who has the most British name ever. Salisbury Humphreys. Captain Humphreys' letter explains that he has orders from British Vice Admiral Berkeley to search the USS Chesapeake for some British Navy deserters, and that he hopes this can happen without the, quote, harmony subsisting between the two countries, close quote, being disturbed. Okay, time out. Before I tell you how James replies, there's something you should know. The British Navy has impressed that is, kidnapped, thousands of American citizens into the British Navy in recent years. I'll explain this in greater detail later today because the context matters, but to give you an immediate example, three of the quote-unquote deserters the British want to search the Chesapeake for are Americans. But since they dared to escape their forced service in this foreign military and return home, the British are now pursuing them as deserters. So what does our American Commodore, James, do? Well, he's aware of the three American deserters, but he can't very well let the British tell him what to do on his own damn ship, or let them take his fellow Americans within ten miles of the U.S. coast, no less. So he writes the following reply to Captain Humphreys. Quote, I know of no such men as you describe, I am also instructed never to permit the crew of any ship that I command to be mustered by any other but their own officers. It is my disposition to preserve harmony, and I hope this answer to your dispatch will prove satisfactory. Close quote. It's now 4.15 p.m. The Leopard flies a signal that tells Lieutenant Meade he needs to come back. The moment this British officer sets off for his own ship, James orders the gun deck cleared. It'll take some time since they just set out and are in no way prepared for battle, but this is starting to feel a little confrontational, so better safe than sorry. Commodore Baron, you must be aware of the necessity I am under of complying with the orders of my commander-in-chief. Captain Humphreys calls out across the waters. Standing on the gangway, James looks on in horror as he sees the leopard's men have already beaten to quarters. Oh God, his own crew's so far behind. He didn't see this coming. James has one hope. To stall. I do not hear what you say. The Commodore bellows through his speaking trumpet. Captain Humphrey repeats himself. James again plays dumb all the while. Both crews are preparing to fire and then... For 15 minutes from 4.30 to 4.45 p.m. The Leopard unleashes broadside after broadside, 18 injured, some severely so, three dead on the spot, all of them American. The caught off guard Chesapeake only manages to fire a single shot. The Americans never had a chance. The Chesapeake strikes its colors. The British board intake four men, Daniel Martin, John Strachan, William Ware, and Jenkin Ratford. Of the four, only Jenkin is British. The other three are those Americans who escaped from forced service in the British Navy. Oh, and two of them, Daniel and William, are certainly not British. With Britain's demographics at the time, it's hard to say they aren't American when they're both black. Having impressed these three Americans into the British Navy a second time, the leopard departs, leaving the Chesapeake battered and broken. It turns back to Norfolk, Virginia, where the Norfolk Gazette and Public Ledger reports on this event two days later, to quote, The independence of our country has been attacked, and in defending it, our fellow citizens have been killed. I'll go ahead and state the obvious in case anyone's missed it. Tension is rising between the young American republic and its old mother country, Britain. And today we're going to see it hit a boiling point as we lay the groundwork for the most overlooked and forgotten war in U.S. history the War of 1812. America is caught between a warring France and Britain, which is leading to major transatlantic trade problems, including impressment of Americans in the British Navy. Talk of a new treaty and economic sanctions by the Jefferson and Madison administrations aren't cutting it, and Americans are only getting angrier, especially when they're convinced the British are arming An Indian coalition led by Tecumseh and his prophetic brother. Because of these factors, and just good old politics, we're going to see some war hawk congressmen get their wish. War. Which, in a way, doesn't start on the battlefield, but with a Republican riot in the streets of Baltimore. So, ready to start another war? All right then, let's get to it. You might recall that the last time we talked about President Thomas Jefferson, things were going rather well for him. The man was cutting taxes, the national debt, the government, the Federalist Party's influence on courts, and doubling the size of the country. Come 1804, he ditches the soon-to-be-charged-with-treason Vice President Aaron Burr for another New York resident, Mr. George Clinton. And by the way, we won't worry about a slugfest election between future presidents and VPs like we did in Episode 18, ever again. 1804 also sees the addition of the 12th Amendment. From now on, the Electoral College will cast separate votes for president and vice president instead of just rolling with first and second. See, America's learning. But things aren't as smooth for the sage of Monticello during the second term because as of 1803, the same year as the Louisiana Purchase, Britain and France go back to war. Yes, like Presidents George Washington and John Adams in episodes 17 and 18, Tom's America is now stuck playing monkey in the middle as these two rival empires hash it out. Now, this isn't always a dire situation. Technically, Tom already saw these titans at war in his first year as president, but since John's administration had just pulled America through that quasi-war with France, Tom had no problems. And in 1803, when a brief break in the nearly constant war between Britain and France comes to an end, America benefits initially. Yeah, American merchants swoop in on the maritime trade, making serious bank off of increased exports to both empires. To quote American minister to Britain, James Monroe, in 1804, he says, The truth is that our commerce never enjoyed in any war as much freedom, and indeed favor from this British government, as it now does. Sounds good, right? But by the start of Tom's second administration in 1805, James will completely change his tune. Why is that? Because British officials, who've grown jealous and tired of neutral America increasingly rocking the transatlantic trade, start pushing back on U.S. shipping. Now, Britain has this policy called the Rule of 1756. This says neutral nations can't ship anything during war that they can't ship during peacetime. If they do, Britain's crazy powerful navy will seize their ships. One example of this would be American merchants transporting goods between France and its Caribbean colonies. France would never permit this during times of peace, but since Britain has Napoleon hemmed in, He's happy to let America fill this role while at war. And Americans have technically stayed within the rule of 1756 by making quick stops between France and the Caribbean in U.S. ports, where they paid duties. Ha! You see it? Now they're not directly facilitating French-on-French French trade. Hashtag loophole. Yeah, British leaders are done with this game. It's enriching America and worse, helping their French enemy at the same time. So the British High Court of the Admiralty issues the Essex decision in 1805, saying neutral merchants, Americans, can't pull this anymore. If they do, Britain will seize those ships. Hashtag loophole closed. Ah, but after the Essex decision, France returns economic fire with the continental system. At this point, Napoleon's on his way to making continental Europe his plaything, but he's not succeeding against Britain. He's learned the hard way at the 1805 Battle of Trafalgar that he can't go broadside to broadside with the British Navy. Ah, So instead, he's going to choke Britain financially. Between 1806 and 1807, Napoleon's Berlin and Milan decrees call for a blockade of the British Isles and declare all British goods eligible for seizure, even if carried by neutral, such as American, merchants. And of course, Britain responds to Napoleon's continental system. It issues some decrees of its own, called Orders in Council, that blockade France and its allies. This shuts down neutral, such as American, ships, unless they stop in Britain first to pay transit duties and do not carry any goods that could help the French war effort. Okay, you get my point, right? It's fine if you've lost track of the specific rules, decrees, and orders. The important thing is this. As Britain and France's commercial warfare gets going in 1805 and continues to escalate, the real goal is to hurt each other or help themselves, not to hurt America. They couldn't care less about the dinky republic. Nonetheless, a side effect is that America goes from freely trading with both empires to getting choked out by both sides. And as America tries to carry on amid this trade war, its ships get seized left, right, and center. Between 1803 and 1812, France seizes roughly 500 American vessels. Its allies, Spain and Denmark, also seize their fair share. Meanwhile, Britain seizes an astounding 900, So as you can see, even though Britain and France really are trying to hurt each other, the one hurting the most is the one stuck between the rock and a hard place. That is Britain and France. The not-so-significant United States. And to make matters worse, the British aren't just taking ships. As you heard in the opening of this episode, American sailors are being impressed, basically kidnapped, into the British Navy. See, the Royal Navy has a real staffing crisis on its hands for two reasons. First, as war expands its fleet, it needs more sailors, like around 130,000. Second, it has less concern for the welfare and pay of its men than Mr. Burns on the Simpsons has for his employees. Obviously, that's a bad combination. To combat this, the British Navy offers signing bonuses and calls for patriots to volunteer. But since American merchant ships offer way better pay and working conditions, very few men line up to join the Navy. A large number of men, whether they volunteered or took a signing bonus, end up deserting. So many captains fall back on the age-old practice of pressing any British subject into the service of king and country. Royal Navy officers start boarding neutral vessels, i.e. American, and looking for British sailors to draft into the service. Yep. British press gangs, as they're called, board American ships, sometimes in American waters, to bolster the crew of British warships. But since American sailors often look British, sound British, the accents are far more alike in the early 1800s than they will be in later centuries. And citizenship papers are easily forged. Most naval captains press, to quote an unnamed British officer, any likely looking lad who had the slightest trace of an Irish or British accent. Quote. Numbers are hard to come by. I mean, the Navy isn't exactly tracking the number of men forced into service who claim to be American, but up to 6,000 U.S. sailors are pressed into British naval service between 1807 and 1812 alone. Impressment enrages Americans for two reasons. First, the blatant kidnapping of American citizens is an obvious non-starter. And second, as I said earlier, British ships are searching American ships in American waters. That's an irrefutable violation of American sovereignty. In the context of the rampant impressment of thousands of U.S. sailors, you can see why the episode's opening of the Chesapeake Affair, as it comes to be known, is such a big deal. It's hardly unique to have British officers board American ships and take men against their will, but it is unique to fire on a U.S. naval ship in the process. Oh, and afterward, British leadership disavowed the attack and recall Captain Berkeley, though he's given another command later. They apologize, offer to pay reparations, and return the two surviving American sailors. One of them dies in a Halifax hospital. But the damage is done. brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, okay. So Britain and France's war, which is also waged commercially, isn't just stifling American trade, it's resulting in thousands of Americans getting kidnapped, sometimes in American waters by the British. Let me know, the issues of impressment and Britain's maritime restrictions are the two main causes of the coming war. But we aren't there yet. For now, America is still trying to respond peacefully, and in 1806, the year before the Chesapeake Affair, the old, less than perfect, but nonetheless something J treaties expired, and we have two Americans trying to negotiate a new treaty that will address these pressing issues. No pun intended, I swear. They are our current American minister to Britain and future U.S. President, James Monroe, and a Baltimore lawyer named William Pinckney. Now, the British won't agree to give up impressment. Their Navy literally can't function without it. But its negotiators do concede to use, quote, the greatest caution, close quote, going forward and to provide, to quote again, immediate and prompt redress, close quote, when they unintentionally snag Americans, including taking them back to their home ports, pronto. Not great, but better than the present situation. On a real upside, the British agree to favorable trade terms on par with, though slightly different from, the Jay Treaty. James and William know this is far from ideal, but while this treaty doesn't take care of the problem with impressment, it does improve the situation. It also hooks up American merchants, and the British ask relatively little in return. There are two requests of any consequence. One, America won't impose unique sanctions on Britain. America won't go along with Napoleon's call to blockade the British Isles from the Berlin Decree. So seeing this treaty as more good than bad, they sign and send this bad boy back home for Tommy's blessing. Yeah, that ain't happening. The sage of Monticello is already philosophically opposed to treaties in the first place. Seriously, dude's not a fan. He once called the Jay Treaty a millstone round our necks. Tom thinks the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty named for James and William, obviously, sucks so much he doesn't even give the Senate a crack at ratifying it. A red-headed Virginian thinks he can bring Britain to its knees, or at least the negotiation table, through economic sanctions, so he won't be signing a treaty in which he gives that up. Ah, economic sanctions. This is nothing new. We listened to Colonial America pull this stunt during the pre-revolutionary years in episodes 2-5. through Patriots called for non-importation and the boycott of British goods, but this ended up hurting Americans more than the British. And revolutionary leaders never freaking figured that out. They did it again and again. Well, Tommy's Democratic Republicans, and frankly, a lot of other Americans, still haven't figured this out either. So from 1806 to 1811, they're using these methods to inflict what they think is a punishment on Britannia and Napoleonic France without realizing the economies of these massive empires will be just fine without the little economy of America. Instead, this will be like throwing a boomerang that comes back and smacks the American economy upside the head. We start with the rather light 1806 Non-Importation Act. It's meant more as a show of strength, while James Monroe and William Pinckney are still hashing out that treaty. But when their treaty sucks, and then the Chesapeake affair goes down, the Republicans are like... Let's douse this sucker in gasoline and throw a match on it. Enter the Embargo Act of 1807, which makes it illegal for American ships to head off to foreign ports. Yeah, that'll show them. Just halt your own exports. Others just sail illegally. I mean, as we saw in episode 3, good luck telling Bostonians how and when to ship. So to enforce the embargo, Tom tells Congress to, quote, legalize all means which may be necessary to obtain its end. Close quote. But even with expanded powers, Tom knows he can't leave the embargo in place forever. He tells James Madison, I take it to be an universal opinion that war will become preferable to a continuance of the embargo after a certain time. He's not wrong. Federalists are having a field day. One popular political cartoon depicts a snapping turtle named, Oh Grab Me, biting and holding a merchant trying to ship his goods. Not only is the turtle, which can withdraw into its shell, a clear allegory for withdrawn American economy, but its name helps drive home the point. Oh grab me is embargo, embargo, backwards. (laughs) Clever, right? In short, 18th century Americans hate on this embargo act almost as much as later Americans will hate on Nickelback. By the time the presidential elections come around, Tom is worn out, trying to keep the U.S. economy afloat in the midst of Napoleon's reign has done him in. He decides to follow George Washington's example and retire after his second term. Remember, there are no term limits yet. His choice to return to his beloved Monticello leaves the Republican Party to nominate someone else for their presidential ticket. On January 24th, 1808, that someone is Secretary of State James Madison, with George Clinton as VP. And this is a pretty strategic move that keeps George from running for Commander-in-Chief himself. James Madison. We've come to know him well since episode 15, but let's recap. The blue-eyed, balding, 50-something Virginian is famously short, five four. Between his height, or lack thereof, and frail physique... I'm sure you can appreciate that nickname of his you've heard me use so many times in past episodes. Little Jimmy. He doesn't bring the military glory of George Washington, the fire of John Adams, or the command of power like Thomas Jefferson. But don't let that fool you. The shy man has a stellar resume. As the chief architect of the Virginia Plan, he's known as the father of the Constitution. He wrote 29 of the Federalist Papers. He served in Congress and is currently Secretary of State. His main drawback is that reputation for cold and reserved manners. One Washington newspaper editor described him as, quote, a country schoolmaster in mourning for one of his pupils who he has whipped to death. Close quote. Ah, oh, poor little Jemmy. Luckily, James's wife, Dolly, helps his image. She's an important woman in her own right, so let's get to know her a bit, too. Dolly suffered several tragic losses before marrying then-Congressman James Madison. She had two boys with her first husband, lawyer John Todd. During the terrible yellow fever epidemic of 1793 that I mentioned in episode 17, her one-month-old baby, William, died. Then her young husband, John, died, followed by her mother-in-law and father-in-law. This trauma leaves the vivacious woman prone to fits of anxiety and loneliness the rest of her life. But in 1794, when James meets the young widow, through a mutual friend, Aaron Burr, he falls hard, and after consulting with her lawyer, she accepts his proposal. When James later serves in his BFF, Tommy's administration, Dolly acts as the first lady while Tom is president because, well, he's not single, but he's not married either, as you might recall from episode 21. Anyway, Dolly is intelligent, well-connected, and shores up James's shortcomings well. She throws excellent dinner parties, and in her easy conversation, she never badmouths the other candidates. She focuses only on promoting her husband. The beautiful, dark-featured Dolly helps rally the votes in favor of her two inches shorter husband. But it's the Federalist candidate, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who's the real threat. The once-nearly-dead Federalist party is gaining new strength— with the unpopular embargo. Even that ill-conceived non-exportation policy can't pull James down, though. Between his impressive service record and Dolly's charisma and connections, Pinckney gets steamrolled in November 1808. James receives 122 electoral votes. Pinckney, 47. And he knows Dolly played a significant role. Of the election, Pinckney says, I was beaten by Mr and Mrs. Madison. I might have had a better chance had I faced Mr. Madison alone. Close quote. As the Madisons head to the White House, our fourth U.S. President, James, soon finds he'll have a harder time than he thought. His Republicans might control Congress, but they're divided into three factions. One, Northeast Republicans, who sound pretty Federalist in most of their rhetoric. Two, Western Republicans, who find nothing sexier than a massive military. And three, the old Southern Republicans, who simply oppose James because he isn't James Monroe. On top of these divisions, he also has a slightly resurrected Federalist Party that picked up seats on the promise to repeal that ridiculous Embargo Act. Despite a divided Congress, they managed to replace the Unpopular Embargo Act with the Non-Intercourse Act. No, it doesn't require abstinence talks in high school sex ed classes. It says Americans can trade with all countries other than Britain and France. It also allows the president to open trade with these warring countries if they ever behave themselves and acknowledge U.S. neutrality. Being yet another version of the same backward economic policy behind the Embargo Act, this bill doesn't do the U.S. economy any favors, and the government's coffers remain almost empty. So Congress tries another approach with Macon's Bill No. 2 in May 1810. It's a bit convoluted, but in a nutshell, it dials back non-importation and reopens trade with Britain and France. But, as a carrot to both empires, if one of them abandons its anti-neutral policies and the other doesn't follow suit... Then the U.S. will once again impose non-importation on the empire still attacking American shipping and trade exclusively with the one that's being cool. Confused? No worries. Even our new intellectual president isn't sure he follows. James is so frustrated by what he calls a feeble and bewildering law, he says Congress must be in a permanently, quote, unhinged state, close quote. But there's one guy who isn't confused at all. Napoleon. The military genius sees an opportunity to drive America into war with Britain, and he takes it. In August 1810, French foreign minister, Duc de Cador, sends a letter to American minister John Armstrong promising that France will repeal its Berlin and Milan decrees by November 1st if, quote, the United States shall cause their rights to be respected by the English, close quote. Now the clever emperor has no intention of revoking the continental system or leaving American ships alone. James can see that Napoleon is screwing with him, but he has to go along with the charade because quote, it promised us at least an extrication from the dilemma of a mortifying peace or a war with both the great belligerents. Close quote. This all plays just as Napoleon hopes. Britain refuses to revoke its orders in council, which pushes little Jemmy to proclaim a renewal of non-importation against British goods in February 1811. Meanwhile, war hawks in Congress, who actually want war with Britain, gladly pass a law in March backing up the President's proclamation. Damn, Napoleon. Well played. Or rather, bien joué. And Anglo-American relations are unraveling for other reasons, too. In May 1811, we have the Little Bell Affair, in which the 54-gun USS President has its way with the HMS Little Bell. It's a confusing encounter, and after the fact, no one is even sure who drew first blood. But, nine British sailors die, and 23 more are wounded. With the British feeling about this incident the same way the Americans feel about the Chesapeake Affair, we're only another step closer to war. And the further complications don't end there. While we've rightly been focused on sailor impressment and a trade war, rising tensions between the United States and American Indians is another contributing factor to the coming war between Britain and its former American colonies. Seriously, let me lay out the situation between the U.S. and a rising alliance of tribes, then we'll circle back to how Britain has anything to do with this. Two Shawnee brothers, Tenskwadawa, usually called the prophet because of his visions and miracles and because we're afraid to pronounce his name, and Tecumseh, are building a coalition of Indian tribes. They've been preaching a return to traditional ways and Indian self-determination to tribal leaders of the Shawnee, Ottawa, Seneca, and Wyandot. They explain that colluding with or capitulating to the Americans is just quote abandoning to the interests of their respective nations. The brothers established a village at Prophetstown, Indiana, and followers flocked to the stronghold on the banks of the Wabash River. This, of course, scares the white population. The governor of the Indiana Territory, future U.S. President William Henry Harrison, desperately tried to discredit the prophet by demanding that the spiritual leader perform a miracle. In 1806, the bold prophet predicted an eclipse. A total solar eclipse. In fact, he promised that all disbelievers would, quote, see darkness come over the sun. Close quote. There's no way to fake that. So William figured he had the guy cornered. But then it happens on June 16th, 1806. Just like the 2017 solar eclipse that traveled across the entire U.S., as the chaos ensued, the prophet stayed in his tent, emerging once the sun got completely darkened by the moon to say, Behold, did I not prophesy correctly? See, darkness is coming. Whew, he might as well have been Eddard Stark, ominously saying, winter is coming. He then commanded the sun to shine again and return to his tent. Hashtag mic drop. So, Governor William Henry Harrison, who hoped prophecy would weaken the prophet and Tecumseh, not strengthen them, watched as the prophet's followers completely submitted to him. By 1811, Prophetstown is a true stronghold. As their numbers grow, the people living in the village fortified themselves in their easily defended wooded location. Even William admits, quote, It is impossible that a more favorable location could have been chosen. Close quote. He estimates the Shawnee brothers have over 6,000 followers on the banks of the Wabash and Tippecanoe Rivers by now, making them the largest settlement of Indians or whites in the entire Indiana Territory. White settlers are demanding the governor do something about the growing American Indian threat. Here's the thing. 1811 is a bad year for William, and his career is on the ropes. He wants to get enough votes to turn his territory into a state. He says, to quote him, Indiana cannot for many years become a member of the Union, and I am heartily tired of living in a territory. Close quote. He wants the fertile banks of the Wabash for white settlement, not the base of an Indian confederation in the middle of his territory. So, before Tecumseh can drum up more support, William makes his move. In the spring of 1811, the governor sends surveyors into the land north of Prophetstown. He hopes that this will irritate Tecumseh and the Prophet, and it does. In response, Tecumseh steals a load of salt that William sent upriver as a present for tribes that are still friendly to him. The power-hungry William uses this simple theft to raise the alarm of war. He writes to Washington, D.C. and says, quote, From all I can collect, I have not the least doubt but a crisis with this fellow is approaching. Quote. On July 17th, the Secretary of War, William Eustace, gives William the okay to raise an army and, quote, if the prophet should commence war or seriously threaten hostilities, he ought to be attacked, close quote. That's all the permission the hot-tempered governor needs. William recruits an army of 1,100 regulars and militia from Indiana and is joined by a few hundred men from the 4th Infantry based in Pittsburgh. The guys build a fort, aptly named Fort Harrison, near modern-day Indianapolis. William assures his ill-trained army of an easy victory. John Drummonds, a soldier serving under now General William Harrison, writes to his wife, quote, Make yourself as contented as possible. The governor says that he will ensure every man safe home to his wife. Close quote. With their confidence bolstered, if not their military skills, the army marches about 70 miles north to Prophetstown. They camp two miles away from the village at the confluence of the Wabash River and the Tippecanoe Creek. The people of Prophetstown stay in defense mode and the army camp and Indian village settle into an uncomfortable stalemate. Until a mistake made by a few lowly soldiers trigger a battle, that is. While a few Winnebago Indians are making their nightly patrols on November 6th, the wet behind the ears American patrollers panic and kill two of the Braves. As news of their death spreads through Prophetstown, the warriors get whipped into a frenzy and seek to avenge their dead compatriots. Even the prophet himself can't stop the ensuing battle. He says, quote, I opposed but could not stop it. Close quote. The prophet's men strike in the middle of the night, just a few hours before dawn. Sentry Stephen Mars hears the approaching Braves and manages to fire a single shot before a tomahawk splits his skull. The vengeful Indians wreak havoc in the northwest area of the camp while groggy soldiers scramble to their posts. In the dark and confusion, the Braves enjoy the upper hand and kill or injure dozens of men. Officer John Tipton says that the first two hours are, quote, continual firing, close quote. He adds that it's so dark and rainy at night that, quote, we could not tell the Indians and our men apart, close quote. Despite the conditions, William and his officers quickly put together a counterattack. The general mounts the nearest horse to lead the charge. It's actually Major Waller Taylor's black horse, but he just needs to get into the battle so he doesn't care. While he and his men try to push the advancing braves back, Colonel Abraham Owen mounts his own gray horse. Now, the Indian warriors know that General William Henry Harrison rides a gray horse. So, mistaking Abraham for William, they surround the colonel and brutally kill him, Thinking the whole time they're attacking the hated general. After the ferocious attack on Abraham, William realizes that Major Waller, also riding a gray horse, is in real danger. William shouts something to his imperiled officer along the lines of Major, dismount or risk your life. The fighting, with guns, bayonets, tomahawks, and arrows, is brutal. Finally, the cavalry charge straight into the fray.
0: Yeah!
1: They manage to push back the Indians, who are running low on ammunition, and they retreat to their stronghold at Prophetstown. The sun rises on November 7th. General William and his men survey the damage from what will come to be known as the Battle of Tippecanoe. 37 soldiers lay dead, including the confident letter writer John Drummonds. Guess that guy doesn't know about foreshadowing. Another 126 are wounded. Indian casualties are about half that, but the Prophet anticipates a retaliation and immediately evacuates Prophetstown. He's spot on. William marches to the Indian base and finds it all but abandoned. The soldiers burn the entire village. When Tecumseh gets back to Prophetstown, he says, Governor Harrison made war on my people in my absence. On my return, I found great destruction and havoc. The fruits of our labor destroyed, the bodies of my friends laying in the dust, and our village burnt to the ground by the big knives. Close quote. Bruised but not broken, his people begin the painstaking process of rebuilding the village. Now, this isn't the last time you'll hear about Tecumseh during the War of 1812. But that's a story for another day. The important thing to know right now is Americans hold the British partly responsible for this major Indian resistance. See, I told you Britain would tie into this. If you remember episode 14, then you know the British have wanted to hem in the United States' potential expansion since before the ink ever dried on the treaty ending the Revolutionary War. Well, after the Battle of Tippecanoe, guess what Americans find among the Indian dead? British guns. Naturally, this leads many Americans to conclude the British up north, you know, in Canada armed the indians and orchestrated the battle for some this is yet another reason to go to war to prevent the british from backing the indians and impeding american expansion
0: when Johann Rawl received the letter on christmas day 1776 he put it away to read later maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So between British maritime trade restrictions, British impressment, and a desire to get rid of British influence on Indians... Americans and their government feel like their national independence is at stake. But as the 12th U.S. Congress meets in 1811, its major yet fractured Republican Party, remember the three subgroups that we talked about earlier, find itself without good leadership. Enter Henry Clay. The tall, blonde lawyer from Kentucky is a freshman Republican representative. Though he's only 34, his work ethic, charisma, and eloquence help him land the Speaker of the House position. But he has a few major character flaws that make a dangerous cocktail when mixed with power. He's vain, refuses to take advice, and doesn't listen well. Basically, he fits into Congress really well. Add to that his lack of experience and sell it like thirst for war and expansion, there is no caging this bird of prey. As Speaker, he fills several committees with young congressmen who are just as trigger-happy as him. These men... Like John C. Calhoun, William Lowndes, George M. Troop, and Peter B. Porter become known as the Warhawks, an insult coined by Congressman John Randolph. Now, most congressmen appreciate the order imposed by the self assured leader. One Federalist even says, The new speaker is quite popular. He possesses fine talents and presides with dignity. Unfortunately, the new speaker doesn't have any war experience. And neither do his closest, war-hungry allies. I mean, these guys were in diapers during the Revolution. They weren't in the Continental Congress. They weren't even at Valley Forge or Yorktown. They literally know nothing about the hardships of funding, manning, or equipping a military. To say nothing of fighting in an actual battle. But they think they're ready to lead the nation to war anyway. So when the President delivers his annual address on November 5th, 1811 to this war Congress, they're a little let down. His pro-war rhetoric is pretty watery, which James does on the advice of his friend and Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin. He only says, quote, Congress will feel the duty of putting the United States into an armor and an attitude demanded by the crisis. Close quote. Although the chomping at the bit war hawks probably want a stronger call to arms, they take James's message and run with it. Henry gives the majority of the work to Peter Porter and the Foreign Relations Committee. Now, they might be pro-war, but they don't want to put the cart before the horse. They go straight to the new Secretary of State, James Monroe, and make sure any recommendations they make for war preparations will be supported by the President. William Lowndes happily reports that, quote, The President will cooperate zealously with Congress in declaring war if our complaints are not redressed by May next. Close quote. So with that carte blanche approval in hand, the Foreign Relations Committee cranks out six resolutions for war. And boy, does the American military need some help. Years of neglect and underfunding by Republicans have left the Navy, well, if you can call it a Navy, in laughable condition. And the Army only has about half of its enlistments filled. It's that bad. Anyway, these resolutions call for filling the army, raising more troops, authorizing state militias, fitting out the navy, and army merchant vessels for defense. Peter makes damn sure that his committee's work is understood by all congressmen. He boldly states that these resolutions are preparations for an actual, not theoretical, war. Quote, Do not let us raise armies unless we intend to employ them. Close quote. Congress reads him loud and clear. They pass all the resolutions by wide margins. One federalist even says, quote, There appears to be a greater degree of unanimity in the national legislature than I have observed since the Revolutionary War. Close quote. Wow, things must be going really well for Henry's Warhawks. But looks can be deceiving. Resolutions for troops and ships are all well and good. But now the war hawks' lack of wartime experience and the rift between congressional factions are becoming glaringly obvious. The Democratic-Republicans have ironclad principles, like small federal government, states' rights, and low taxes. But those become a stumbling block to waging war. Kind of got to fund the military, you know? So when they finally pass a few bills to borrow some money and raise a few duties, the president says, quote, it is the strongest proof they could give that they do not mean to flinch from the contest to which the mad conduct of Great Britain drives them. Close quote. After putting so many military plans in the works, the eager Speaker of the House pressures the administration into an embargo as a final step of declaring war. Even in the face of a few British overtures for peace and open trade, James goes along with the Warhawks and formally asks Congress to declare war on June 1st, 1812. What? Do you think the Republican to the core father of the Constitution is going to declare war himself? Not a chance. He outlines four main reasons for declaring war on the greatest naval power in the world, namely, Britain's trade-killing orders in council, impressment of American sailors, spies in U.S. territory, and arms given to American Indians. He ends by saying, quote, We behold, in fine, on the sides of Great Britain, a state of war against the United States, and on the side of the United States, a state of peace towards Great Britain. Close quote. John C. Calhoun, acting as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, takes James' message and uses his, according to Representative Charles Ingersoll, quote, aggressive aspect, flashing eye, rapid action, and enunciation. Close quote. To persuade Congress to declare war on Britain on June 18, 1812. Of course, we could add a few more reasons for war to what the president has said. For some Americans, they think this is a war of independence part two. As John C. Calhoun puts it while speaking of Britain's current policies and power over the United States, quote, if we submit, the independence of this nation is lost. Close quote. This is also a way to make sure the young American Republic lives on. After all, if the republic can't stand up for itself, the American people might bail on this still relatively new form of government. And finally, let's add the political factor. For the power-holding yet fractured republicans, war is a great way to unite their three factions. After all, while some northeastern republicans vote against the war, only the federalists oppose it in mass. Sadly, their unified opposition to it results in terrifying domestic violence. I could give you examples from across the country, but nothing comes close to the horrific mob scene in Baltimore, Maryland. The staunch Federalist young editor Alexander Conte Hansen knows how to anger Republicans with his Baltimore newspaper, The Federal Republican. They find his harsh criticism of the coming war especially galling, and since he refuses to stop printing and opposing, even calling the war unnecessary, some local Republicans decide to turn vigilante. On June 22nd, four days after James Madison signed Congress's declaration of war, hundreds of men show up at Alexander's office and begin tearing the place apart. Federalists alert officials, but they are of little help. Some agree with the mob, while others, much like officials in 1760s Boston, fear the mob too much to intervene. As Baltimore Mayor Edward Johnson timidly walks through the mob, telling men, My dear fellow, you ought not to do so. French immigrant and mob leader Philip Lewis replies to him. Mr. Johnson, I know you very well. Nobody wants to hurt you, but the laws of the land must sleep and the laws of nature and reason must prevail. That house is the temple of infamy. It is supported with English gold, and it must and shall come down to the ground. The mob ultimately levels the whole building. But lacking an office won't silence Alexander. He rents a three-story brick building on Charles Street. Yeah, a little stronger than his former and demolished wood-framed place. And keeps printing. On June 27th, he decries the, quote, mobocracy, close quote, that viciously leveled his previous office, and the, quote, terrorists upon the floor of Congress, close quote, whose warmongering rhetoric manipulated the people into a mob in the first place. I think you can guess how well this goes over. That night, another mob gathers in front of Alexander's brick building on Charles Street, in which he and over 20 other Federalists have barricaded themselves. At first, the mob throws rocks, breaking windows. The Federalists call to the mob to disperse, but they only reply, Fire! Fire, you damned Tories! Fire! We are not afraid of you! Um... Anyone else having flashbacks to the British account of the Boston Massacre in Episode 3? Come 10pm, Alexander's crew fire a warning shot. The mob leaves, but only to return with weapons of their own. That ball was aimed at me! The Tories ought to be hanged upon this tree! Thaddeus Gale excitedly cries to the mob. Follow me! he adds. They charge and break into the fortified brick building, causing the Federalists to open fire. It might have been self-defense, but the Federalists just upped the ante by killing Thaddeus and others in the mob. All the while, Brigadier General John Stricker refuses to call out the militia. Until the mob's size is starting to threaten his own home, that is. The troop is coming! The troop is coming! Some cries the militia arrive at 3 a.m., The mob starts to disperse until it becomes clear that the malicious Republican leader, Major William Barney, means them no harm. I am sent here by superior orders, or I would not be here. You all know that I am of the same political sentiments with yourselves. I pledge you my word and honor that I will take every man in that house into custody. Calls out the office-seeking Major. Huzzah! 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 The mob cheers in his honor. It's now 4 a.m. The politically-minded Major strikes a different tone as he talks to the Federalists, promising them protection as the Baltimore Sun's editor, Thomas Wilson, encourages firing Cannon and calls out, We must have blood for blood. The civil authorities shall not protect these Tory murderers. We will not be satisfied until we put them to death. Whew. Thankfully, a tailor named Gill and Major Barney keep the mob from firing the artillery. Between 6 and 7 a.m., city officials arrive. Sustained through the night, the mob now swells to as many as 2,000 people. With difficulty, officials persuade the Federalists to enter protective custody. The militia forms ranks protectively around the two dozen men as the mob hurls a few stones that manage to find their marks despite the armed escort. Nonetheless, they get the Federalists to the safety of the jail, but in truth, the worst is yet to come. That night... The mob, still seeking revenge against these men who dared to fight back their own would-be murderers, forms again at the jail. Where are those murdering scoundrels who have come and slaughtered our citizens in cold blood? In the jail, my boys, we must have them out. Blood cries for blood. The Federalists are betrayed as someone within the jail opens the front door. Alexander and his friends quickly put out the candles, knowing confusion and darkness are their best bet. Some are able to escape, but for the rest, it's torture. Nine Federalists are beaten, stacked on each other like mere objects, then beaten some more and stabbed with knives. The mob pours hot wax on their eyes to check for life. We'll root out the damn Tories. We'll drink their blood. We'll eat their hearts, some cry. Truly, I can't begin to do justice to all the violent acts. For instance, John Thompson's beaten, stripped, then tarred and feathered, and lit on fire miraculously, he survives. Our Federalist editor, Alexander, will live through tonight and go on to serve in Congress, though he'll never fully recover from the broken nose, finger, damaged spinal cord, and other injuries before dying in just a few years at the premature age of 33. The Revolutionary War veteran, Major General Light Horse Harry Lee's speech is affected. He'll spend the rest of his life trying to recover his health. Perhaps the saddest tale, though, is that of Federalist Revolutionary War veteran Brigadier General James M. Lincoln. Now, you should know that the British captured James at Fort Washington while chasing George Washington out of New York in 1776. While they had James imprisoned on a ship, his cousin, British Admiral Hood, offered the then-lieutenant his freedom, either £10,000 or $10,000, the record is unclear and a commission in the British military if he would switch sides. I'll rot here first, James replied. Now surrounded by a mob, crying, Tory! Traitor! It's said that the bold, aged patriot rips open his shirt, exposes the scar on his chest from a Hessian bayonet, and simply replies, Does this look as if I was a traitor? The mob responds by throwing stones and stabbing him, piercing the same chest, last bloodied by a Hessian. James dies within a few hours. We'll see our first battle of this war, the War of 1812, in the next episode. But the truth is the first casualty isn't on the battlefield. It's in Baltimore, over politics. It's the patriot in general, James Lincoln. <laughs> History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Researching and writing, Greg Jackson and Ciel Salazar. Production and sound design, Josh Beatty of J.B. Audio Design. Musical score, composed and performed by Greg Jackson and Diana Averill. For a bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, visit historythatdoesntsuck.com. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Special guest, Professor Ben Sawyer. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. My gratitude to your kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Anthony Pizzullo. Art Lang, Beth M. Chris Jansen, Bev Hawkins, Bill Thompson, Bob Drazovich, Brad Herman, Brian Goodson, Carrie Begoli, Charles and Shirley Clendenden, Chris Mendoza, Christopher McBride, Christopher Merchant, Christopher Pullman, Dane Polson, David Aubrey, David DeFazio, David Rifkin, Denke, Durante Spencer, Donald Moore, Ernie Lowe, Gareth Griffin, Henry Brunges, Jacob McDaniel, Jake Gilbreth, James Black, Janie McCreary, Jeffrey Moots, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Popic Joe Dobis, Joel Kerr, John Frugal-Dougal, John Booby, John Keller, John Oliveros, John Wiglevich, John Schaefer, John Schaff, Jordan Corbett, Justin M. Spriggs, Karen Bartholomew, Kim R., Kyle Decker, Lawrence Neubauer, Linda Cunningham, Mark Ellis, Mark Price, Matthew Mitchell, Matthew Simmons, Melanie Jan, Meg Sekinder, Noah Hoff, Paul Goinger, Reese Humphries Wadsworth, Rick Brown, Sarah Traywick. S.B. Wave, Sean Peppard, Sharon Thieson, Sean Baines, The Creepy Girl, Tisha Black, and Zach Jackson. Join me in two weeks, where I'd like to tell you a story.